read the passage. We'll be in Mark 10 today. I want to emphasize two things. Hold in the rope. The next three weeks, you'll be spared because we're having wonderful speakers to give you hearing relief. And uh, we're going to be having Justin Green, pastor of Salem Heights Church in Oregon, and a very strong missions church, big and going to Guatemala and other countries. And he's going to kick off this conference for us next week. And then the following week, our missionary, John Vatens from Romania, uh, will be preaching for us morning and night and uh, is a powerful preacher, a wonderful servant of God. And then the third week out, we'll be having uh, Andre Sims holding a men's conference. And that men's conference is going to be on the 19th. How many of you men have thought about any of you planning to be there? Good, good. You know why we're doing this? We're trying to rescue men from pornography, from bad marriages, poor fatherhood. We're going to offer you skills. Andre will be speaking there, and there will be others doing seminars and walking in the spirit, walking in purity. And uh, we want you men to come. Uh, Chuck Lottie Baudier is giving leadership to this and working hard. And... Uh, we're going to feed you. It starts on a Friday night. We'll be going on Saturday. Andre Sims will conclude Sunday morning. And uh, women, it would be great to get your husband out of the house, under the word, and with some other men to challenge him of what a Christian man looks like. And uh, it's more than being a breadwinner. If he wasn't married, he'd have to work. So we keep, well, he brings in the bacon. Well, he's bringing in the bacon because he gets hungry. But does he know how to be a Christian father, a Christian husband? You know, one thing I found in this church in the early days for sure, all I got was first-generation Christians. They didn't know squat about anything when it came how to have a Christian home, how to treat a woman, how to raise kids. Uh, they came from basically pagan backgrounds. And they, did, they weren't, how many here are first-generation Christians? Okay, okay. How many of you are third-generation? Yeah, see, we were nearly perfect when we got married. <laughs> see, we had all the rough edges knocked off. Uh, and holding the rope. I, I would ask you, uh, I want you to know about missions. Missions in this church is a freestanding fund. It's not funded out of our general fund. It stands at, that on your envelope, we have a missions fund there. And what we did years ago, we went to faith promises because in essence, we were trying to take the lid off of missions that if you wanted to give thousands of dollars more than we might have budgeted for it, we said, we would distribute the amount you give. And last year, I think you gave around $150,000 to missions. We support 11 different missionaries, and really we got a 12th because we helped Tooth for Today uh, do some of its ministry. And so that's where we're spending it. We'll give more away. We'll take on more. Uh, we might give raises to those we already support. They actually need raises. 
because of the standard of living on the field. So be praying about, do you support missions at all? Maybe God would capture you to include in your monthly giving supporting missionaries. We can't do any more than what you're willing to give. If you give it, we promise you we'll get it to a missionary agency. I wanted you to underscore these things in your mind. Timothy, please come. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, or your electronic devices that are selected to a Bible passage and not to the sports. We're going to read from Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or to left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I want to speak on how to go from being good to being great. In our Bible study with Chip Ingram, in our home Bible studies, he's been developing this theme, how to be great. A lot of us are just good, and some of us are just lousy. And sometimes we don't even want to be great. We've gotten in love with what we are but you might be destined to be a lot more than what you're living right now. God may have greater things for you. Jim Collins wrote the uh, book that's becoming a classic for the business world, management, how to have a good company to go to a great company. And he has that famous analogy that's used all the time. Are you on the bus? Where do you sit on the bus? And Jim Collins has become famous through that book, Good to Great. And in the midst of reading the Gospels, I was struck by this, that Jesus gives a formula of how to go from good to being great. I never thought he would even address such a theme. 
Look, if you will, in the chapter. I, I will say once again, I've neglected the Gospels most of my ministry. I've stayed in the epistles. When I went to teach the Christian life, I went to Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, the epistles. I never hardly ever thought of the life of Christ as a model for our living because I saw Christ under the law. I saw uh, a dispensation that the Spirit had not yet been given to believers. And so I, but as I read Matthew 28 again, he said, go and disciple the nations. And then I asked myself, what's your curriculum? What are we to teach them? Romans hasn't been written. Galatians hasn't been written. Corinthians has not been written. Revelation has not been written. And everybody's talking about discipleship, discipleship. Teach them what? Teach them everything I taught you and teach them to obey it. Do you ever start with the Gospels to teach people how to live for God? Something besides the Sermon on the Mount. I've been outlining all the lessons. I'm up to about 50 lessons from the Gospels that I never started people with before. And so I've been reading over and over the Gospels because I'd like to know more about Jesus. You can study Chronicles all you want and know all the Philistines and name them by name. I want to know Christ. And some of you are full of revelation. You ought to be full of the revealer. Christ. The book of Revelation is about Christ. The epistles are about Christ. The gospels are about Christ. Are you Christ-like? Why don't you find out what he said? And so in my reading, I come to this Mark passage. First, look at the flow of Mark uh, 10. Look, he starts out telling them how you can leave a marriage partner. He talks about divorce. And he said, basically, divorce is against everything God has ever said he wants his people to do. It happens, but he's giving among the rabbis, they had different views. One view is you could divorce your wife for anything. The rabbinic literature, if she burnt the bread, you could divorce her. Literally, it was in rabbinic literature. Uh, you just And the man had the right of divorce, not the woman. And so he'd just say, this is over. Then there was the other school that was more conservative, and that school would say, no, we, we ought to stay married. There's few exceptions. And Christ finally said, the only exception that would break up a marriage and give a right of remarriage was marital unfaithfulness. You form another covenant. You break covenant with your wife. You formed a one flesh union with someone else. You have that right to remarry, and we advocate people forgive and go on. But he deals with that, and then the matter of little children come up. The little children want access to him. The disciples despise them, push them away. Jesus rebukes them. There are no little people in God's eyes. There are no little people in God's eyes. And he said, unless you become like a child, and he did not mean childish. Many of us are much of that. But he means childlike, which is humility and trust. A child trusts normally. They just trust. Then he talks about a rich young ruler that basically, and he says he loved this young man, but he gave him this option. 
to follow me, I'm going to test whether you would follow me. And to follow me, I know what you love the most in life is money. So I'm going to say this. If your eternal destiny is based upon me or money, which one will you trust? And the rich young ruler said, I'll take money. And the principle is this. If you won't follow Jesus in time, you won't follow him for eternity. If you're not naming him now, you won't claim him then. Right now is the time to follow. So the boy goes away, and Jesus felt grieved for him because he wouldn't make the trade. I'd rather keep what I've got and lose Christ than to give up anything to follow him. And that's what we call cheap discipleship today, discipleship that costs nothing, discipleship that is cheap and is American and is a 1,000 miles from the Bible. Quit being cheap Christians. Quit being American Christians. Become biblical Christians. Then, in the middle of this, Christ, for the third time, mentions that he's going to go to the cross and the disciples are so amazed that in his body language, it says they were astonished and afraid. And commentators said there must have been something about the body language of Christ that he's like in full gait. I must go to Jerusalem. Let's go. Let's go. And, and said, so wait, you just said that's where you're going to be killed. How can you go headlong into it? I must go. The, the clock is ticking. It's my time. They've tried to stone me. They've tried to throw me over mountains. They've tried one time, but God's time is now. I'm running towards the cross. And they were astonished. And then, and then we get this request of James and John. James, who writes the book of James, the first pastor of Jerusalem. John, who writes the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, book of This John, they both say, we are totally blind and insensitive to what your assignment is. We know you're Messiah. All we care about is reigning with you. We're not going to sympathize with you. Because they totally skipped over the cross. They still didn't get it. I just said I'm going to the cross. You want me to give you a position in my cabinet in the reign of Christ. And then he asked them a question. Do you think you could drink the cup I'm going to drink? Meaning suffering. Uh, can you be baptized with my baptism that is enter into my experience? And they said, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And he said, you will. James, you're going to be beheaded in Jerusalem. And John, you're going to be exiled on the Isle of Patmos. You will taste my experience. You will drink this cup. But for me to give you positions in the kingdom just left and right because you want it, no, no, no. I'm not giving away positions. By the way, I like to tell you men how to become great. And it won't be sitting on thrones. It will be by waiting on tables and changing your whole outlook on what you are. And this is going to be radical. 
And four things he said I want to change in you. Number one, I want you to think of authority not as Gentile authority. Two, you must become servants. Greatness is servanthood. Thirdly, you must become slaves of God. Greatness is knowing you're owned by God. Then I want you to sacrifice yourself on the sacrifice of the cross, even as the Son of Man will give his life to ransom. And then the question before all of us, will you surrender yourself to such greatness? Uh, the Jews knew something about Gentile power. They went into captivity in 606 to Assyria. Assyria took the northern tribes, 10 of them, mean to them. The Assyrians were the most brutal uh, killers of the ancient Near East. They often stacked skulls at the entrance of a city to remind the citizens, so it will be to you if you don't bow. They were cruel. They were vicious. The Jews knew something about Gentile power. Then, 586, Nebuchadnezzar takes them up into Babylon for 70 years. And let me tell you, they ravished the city. They ravished the women. They dashed infants against the wall. They knew what Gentile power was. Then it was Medo-Persia. Then it was Greece. And now they've lived their whole lives under the heel of Rome. That taxes you, taxes you, and beats you, can tell you whatever. They run Palestine. And he said, you shall not in my kingdom Use Gentile authority to rule among my people. I forbid it. Gentile power was, you do what I say, you exist for my agenda, you do what I tell you. Biblical authority, listen, biblical authority is always, and biblical leadership is always for the benefit of the led. Shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep. They don't tell the sheep to lay down their life for the shepherd. God said to, in his word to Peter, Peter, tell the elders, do not lord it over the flock, but prove to be examples to them, serving willingly, not for money, not with reluctance, but do it for the purpose of my kingdom Paul said, I have authority, 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 13, twice he told the Corinthians who despised his apostolic authority. He said, I do have authority, but it's for your edification. Twice he said that. It's to build you up. It's for your benefit. And so every man that leads anything in this church, if he's doing it like Christ says, you're leading something for the benefit of the lead, not for your benefit. That's why it's hard to get leadership in the church. We get a thousand opinions. We get few God-given leaders. Men can run companies that can't lead in the church. They're too selfish. They are used to hiring and firing and being in charge and in the church, you don't get that authority. There's only one boss. His name is Jesus. 
You got to pay the price to be the boss. He paid it. The rest of us work for him. He's the boss. You like to call me the boss when you're mad and ticked. I'm not the boss. He's the boss. It's his church. And if you don't love his church, you don't love him. Everybody likes to pick on the church. The church ain't doing this. Church isn't this. Church, hey, why don't you tell Jesus? He bought us. Matter of fact, he even bought you. We're stuck with you, and you're stuck with us. Let's enjoy each other. Huh? I'm talking about God's church. Do you love God's church? God's church, God's redeemed, fallible, flawed people saved only by the blood of the Lamb. He goes on to say, uh, I want you to become servants if you want to be great. And servanthood, even in the time of Jesus, was a despised vocation outlook. The Greeks said no nobleman should ever serve. Listen to what they said. They said, in Greek eyes, this is Kittle's dictionary, serving is not very dignified. Ruling and not serving is proper to a man. The formula of the sophists, the philosophers, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And this word for serve is our word for deacon. It's our word for minister. It's our word for any kind of service rendered in the body of Christ. And they said, you can't be happy if you've got to serve. So when they get to the upper room, they all look at each other, look at each other, look at each other. Hey, I ain't washing your feet. I'm a Jew. And Jews didn't wash feet. They hired Gentile pagans to wash feet in their festivals. And all of a sudden, the king of the Jews is washing their feet. You can hear the water being poured and the shock. They're so shocked. Peter said, by George, you're not washing my feet. My king is not washing my feet. I will wash your feet, Peter. You'll have nothing to do with me. I'm not coming like another Nero. I'm not coming like Caligula. I'm not coming like Alexander the Great. I'm coming as the humble servant of God. That's the way Isaiah painted him, the suffering servant of God. This is your Savior I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your boss and your company. I'm talking about your Savior. This is how he acted. And then the Jews, what did they think about serving? Listen to what Hess says. Though Judaism in the time of Jesus knew and practiced social responsibilities to help the poor, it was mainly by giving alms. It was never by doing service. You paid somebody. You'd give the alms at the temple. Pay somebody to do that. I'm not going to get my hands there. I, I, no, no. Uh, that's against me. Uh, I'm not. I, I served long enough in Egypt. I'm not going to serve anybody else. Lowly service was beneath the dignity of a free man. And Jesus is telling them, you want to be great? You got to become a servant. I love what Manson said. In the kingdom of God, service is not a stepping stone to nobility. 
It is nobility. The only kind of nobility recognized in Christ's kingdom is servanthood. The diatrophies that wants the preeminence, the man that has to have strokes and coddled and carried on beds of ease, this is not the Christ model. This is Gentile model. This is a pagan world model, not the model Christ gave. If you want to be great, you got to become a servant. Then he says something that is absolutely astounding and can insult you. He goes on to say you must become his slave. But before I, I leave this being a servant, I read a line where Gandhi said that his grandfather one time told him, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who take the work and the others who take the credit. Two kinds. Dwight L. Moody, the famous Billy Graham evangelist of the 1800s, used to hold a pastor's conference north of Chicago. It was in Northfield, and that's where he had his Bible conferences and all that. Of course, he starts Moody Bible Institute, but he's the Billy Graham of the 1800s, goes to Europe. They loved him in England, and, and here was a man here was a man was nothing but a shoe salesman, shoe salesman, and uh, was so good. He, he never knew he could teach the Bible. Uh, he ran a Sunday school in Hell's Kitchen, uh, Chicago, and he paid a man. He rented a bar, and he paid a man to be a Sunday school teacher for ruffian little hoodlums in Chicago. He shows up one week. And this man doesn't show up. So Moody's left to teach the lesson. And God used him so mightily, he never looked back. From that day on, he became a preacher of the gospel when all these ruffian boys knelt as he gave his first Sunday school lesson, and they knelt to receive Christ. But at that Northfield school, he had these pastors from Europe. And uh, uh, one night, he was going around the conference, and he knows down the hallway, all the European pastors had put their shoes out down the hall, as was the custom in England. And what they did in England, they had hall servants that polished your shoes. And Moody sees all these shoes. There's no servant designated for this conference. What does he do but gather them all up? takes him to his room, and he starts polishing shoes into the midnight hour. And all of a sudden, an unexpected friend of his came by, or we would have never known the story. And he asked Moody, what are you doing? He said, I'm being the hall servant for my brothers from Europe. You call that servanthood. Unseen stooping. Then he goes on to say, hey, you must become a slave of God. And it's the Greek word doulos. And slave really has this meaning. I, I think with African Americans, they could always go back to American slavery. 
Remember, this term was used of Jesus in Philippians 2. He said, I took on the form of a slave. I'm not talking about American slave. I'm talking about I have become the slave of God's will. He owns me. I volunteer to leave a throne and come to a manger to be a slave to the will of God. And he comes. He said, I'm owned. I'm owned. And that's a good question to ask yourself. Who owns you? Are you owned by God? Now, you aren't owned by God, just fiat. You're owned by God by what the Son of God did. He said, I'm going to ransom you to make you my own. It's going to cost me something to make you my own. But there's two ways to see this word. Servanthood is a horizontal relationship. And we need to get this straight. I'm your servant, but I'm not your slave. Do you get the difference? Maybe you don't. Slave is a vertical relationship. I am a bought man. I'm owned by God. Now, that gives you a great internal core value that I'm here as one that will serve, but I'm only owned by one. I'm not owned by the highest donor in this church. And I'm not owned by the elders. And I'm not owned by this one. I'm not owned by some political party. I'm owned by a risen Savior. Only he purchased me. And you too. Are you his man? Do you live as though I'm, I'm the property of deity? He bought the right. And bought me out of the slavery of sin. And he wants me to live not as, I'm my own man. Oh, get out of here with that stuff. You're your own man to go to hell. When God saves you, you cease to be your own man. You're to become his man, his woman, his young person. I'm owned. I'm bought. I'm not for sale. I have one master. I call him Lord. He's Christ. He's not you, and I'm not your audience. It's an audience of one who owns you. Do you exist for his purpose or for your egotistical world? I'm weary of the American Christianity that is as artificial as a $3 bill. That's why you need to read the Gospels and find out how it's supposed to look. Trump ain't my example, honey. And I hadn't found anybody hardly up there that is. I've got to look to the third heaven. And there I've got a nail-scarred Savior that says, I bought you. I am the slave. And this term, by the way, was used by the apostles as they opened their letters. Paul a slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle by the will of God. He put his slavery to Christ before his apostolic office. Before his gift, before his authority, he said, I want you to know I'm an own man. Wouldn't that be wonderful if everybody around you knew 
Don't mess with him. Somebody else has already purchased him. Young people, don't throw your body to the world and some fly-by-night boy that wants to get you in bed. You say, I already belong to a man, and he told me how to date, told me how to court, told me who to marry, so flake off, Roach. I'm, I'm obedient to Christ. I'm his man. I'm his man. I'm his woman. I've been bought with a price. My body is to glorify Christ. He goes on to say that uh, if you want to be great, you've got to be willing to sacrifice yourself, even as the Son of Man who gave himself to ransom us. Now, if you don't like this model, go tell Jesus. It's not mine. I don't like it myself. I didn't invent it. I don't think you can get anyone to follow but strange enough, God can so overwhelm you with his love and his grace that you want to follow. That you want to follow. I think of a, a song I often quote in my prayer time. It's so old that only I and the Lees know it. When I saw the cleansing fountain open wide for all my sin, I owe the Spirit's wooing when he said, Wilt thou be clean? Here's the verse that always slays me as I pray. Though the way seems straight and narrow, all I claimed was swept away. My ambitions, plans, and wishes at my feet in ashes lay. I will praise him. I will praise him. Have you ever had him slay all your vain ambitions? Have you ever had him evaporate all your plans and all of a sudden says, Lord, I have no plans, no ambitions, but to do your will. You're in charge. All that I've live for up to now in ashes at your feet lay. I offer myself as a living sacrifice. You said you wanted to use my body and I offer it as a living sacrifice. You said in 1 Peter we've been saved to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. I live to give him praise. That's my sacrifice of the fruit of my lips. I will praise him. I, I wrestled uh, today when I was praying, and I went down and looked up my concordance. I wanted to look up the word ambition. Ambition is always used negatively except for one place in the New Testament. James said that earthly wisdom is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. So I thought, but I remembered a verse. It was 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Our ambition is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. There is the right ambition. Let me ask you these questions in closing. 
How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as one that should be served or one willing to serve? What's, what's your, when you get with people, you say, hey, get to waiting on me. Wait on me. I'm important. I, I'm somebody. Or do you say, when I enter a situation, I'm willing to be of any service God makes possible if I can render it. Two, who owns you? Do you belong solely to yourself, maybe to others, maybe things own you, or to God? Who, who really owns you? If I said, take me to your boss, who would you take me to? Your wife? Or some employment? Or, well, who? Come on now. Don't, don't lie to me. The warriors? Are they your boss? They're winning so much, I'm getting bored watching them. <laughs> Who's your boss? Who owns you? Somebody does. I'd ask you this. How are you planning to invest the rest of your life? You know, I would say this. We got a lot of folks getting old and dying. And if we just try to be a youth culture, you'll forget all these people in their 60s that are going to hell. You grew up with some of them, some of them are family. Who's going to reach them before they die? You don't have to be a teeny bopper to reach someone for Christ. How about reaching somebody dying of TB? Somebody in their last days. Jesus can get to looking pretty good when you're on a respirator and you've only got months to live. Are you visiting? My brother David's been driving up to Napa for several years now trying to reach a man in his 80s with Christ. He goes up there for years trying to lead him to Christ. I like to say this. The great people in this church are the servants. This church has been built on the back of servants. We are looking at our family life center. We were taking a tour with a pastor that has all kinds of ideas. Our, our family life center is 25 years old. Carpets are wearing out. Paint is needed. Needs a facelift. It's a little dismal. I don't like our children going over there with darkness. I want LED lighting. I'm going to light the place. See, as adults, we'll scream if we don't like the surroundings. But some of you never go over there, do you? When's the last time you went to Family Life Center? Unless you've got children there or teenagers, who wants to go there? I want to stay over here where we use Lysol. Everything's nice. Huh. Over there, you're allowed to get snake bit. You know, all these teenagers, let the kids have it. Things are run down. This is that. We're saying, we're looking and said, hey, we don't need a coffee house. We need to upgrade our family life center. Get ready. I want to ask you to give us some money pretty soon. You get nervous. I can see you grabbing your wallet right there. <laughs> Say, no, 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 you don't take an offering. Because we want to lift it up. And you know what? We're going through this guy saying, well, you need to change those doors. Well, it's hard for me because I know how they got stained. Sharon Andrews led a bunch of our women. Her husband came to me and said, Phil, you got to tell Sharon to start staying home. She's staying out of the church too much. 
working on that project. The electrical was all done by our men. We didn't hire an electrician. John Guadalrama and a bunch of our men put it in. The lights up on that stage, Ted Swanson and Paul Howard put up. We didn't bring in any outsiders. Our men did it. We had deacon meetings where we just hung sheetrock for the evening. What bothers me, like in the entrance there, the highest part, they nominated me to go up. I mean, it was a hostile board in those days. They thought, we can afford to lose him. Yeah, one day I went to jump in and help unload a bunch of five-inch rock. How many's ever unloaded five-inch sheet rock, 12 feet long? Anybody? You got to be crazy. It's heavy. No pastor should have ever been asked to do that. That's why I've aged before my time. But that building over there was built on sweat labor. Don Sylvester, nearly 80 years old, every day came out, put on his tool belt, work on electrical outlets, this, that, because we didn't want to go in debt, so we just poured. It's the only building we ever had. Everything else was a dump. And we thought, nothing of it. This church has been built on the backs of great people, and they were servants. They weren't prima donnas. They didn't seek honor. They didn't seek wages. They just did it because they loved the Savior who owned them. You know, we're down on staff. I'm the only full-time adult pastor, so if your needs don't get met real quick, get over it. We don't have, David's a volunteer. Anyone else that helps us with adults are volunteers. They're not paid. And I thought, you know what, in a way, it wouldn't hurt if we got rid of everybody and everybody did their gift and there'd be no needs. Everybody would meet the needs because everybody's employed. But when only 20% do 80% of the work, who do you get to do it? Because we're American Christians. We expect. We're consumers. We expect the best. We expect. I want to ask, are you a servant? What do you do in the body of Christ? When did God start owning you? I uh, searched my heart this morning, and I asked myself, what's been your ambition? What is your ambition? And I have to say this. For, for however long I have yet to live, in 1959, in a message on Isaiah 6, who will go for us? A 15-year-old punk from San Pablo said, I'll go. You got me. I don't know how to preach. I don't know if I could be pure. I don't know anybody around me that was. But Lord Jesus, I want to spend the rest of my life telling you I love you. And my only ambition has not been money, power, position, a big church. I don't know how this church got this size. It wasn't because of me. I don't know how. I don't know how to make things grow. I want to grow. I want to grow as a man in the Lord. You came because you heard Jesus was in the place. You heard the word would be preached. 
And that, I must say, until I die, I'm going to preach the Bible. I'm going to preach the Bible. Yeah. I, I'm going to do that. My prayer is for you young people, before you make a lot of wrong choices in life, why don't you treat him as Lord now and say, I'm bought. You get me. Here's my life. What age do you have to be to acknowledge that and start living different? And I want to say, thank God for every servant that's done our nursery, our children, our deacons, our repairs, our buildings. You'd be amazed at the, I think about Lyle Bombardier. I see him around here all the time with Scott. What are you doing here, Lyle? I love working here. How much are we paying you? Jesus is the one paying me. What are you doing for the cause? Why don't you get tired of being mediocre? And why don't you sign up to become great? Become a servant? Buy yourself a towel and get busy. We don't have long. We don't have long. Our Father, we want to be like Jesus. There are some people here, they are slaves of sin. They're slaves of a cruel taskmaster called Satan. And they need to be liberated. They need to step out of their darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know you and they want to come to Christ, would you move in their heart and let us pastors after this service and prayer counselor be waiting to say, we're here. We're God's midwives to help deliver the baby. Only God can make you want God. Only God can make you want to let him own you and follow him. Apart from him, the thief comes to kill, to destroy, and to damn. But I have come that you might have eternal life. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Let him become the Lord of your life. You'll never, never have any regrets for all eternity. I pray you'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite your friends. Be back here next week. Justin will bless your heart. You're going to have a great time. God bless you.